Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. The author of those famous words, Martin Niemöller, spent the last seven years of Nazi rule in the concentration camps there. If only someone had spoken out sooner, he would later and often wonder, what atrocities might have been stayed or avoided altogether. Three quarters of a century after that ghastly chapter in human history, the world is once again flirting with the looming specter of totalitarianism. It seems man is not only doomed to ignore the lessons of the past, but committed to repeat his errors. A year ago this month, we began speaking out about the authoritarian mission creep in the state of Victoria, in our birth country of Australia. The premier there, Dan Andrews, appeared to entertain certain dictatorial aspirations, locking up his city, Melbourne, imposing curfews and harsh punishments on his citizens, even deploying members of the Australian Armed Forces to patrol the streets there. The nation watched on as a pregnant mother was handcuffed in front of her children for daring to voice an opinion on social media that was not in keeping with that of the Andrews regime. Footage emerged shortly afterwards of elderly couples having their phones snatched from their hands by tin badge cockroaches and being moved on from public benches. Protesters were met with the iron fist of the state and swiftly and decisively dealt with. As we wrote at the time, faced with the prospect of surrendering their most hard-won liberties, Victorians must ask themselves whence those freedoms came, and, more urgently, to what extent they will go to defend and preserve them. It would be a shameful irony indeed if the birthplace of Australian democracy was to serve as the battleground in which it was ultimately interred. Well, fast forward a year, and we see now the results of having surrendered those precious liberties for the false promise of a little illusory security. Victoria is today in its sixth lockdown. New South Wales has joined them. So too other states, which suffer snap lockdowns at even the hint of a positive COVID-19 case. All this as the rest of the world opens up and learns to live with the virus. Australia is being left behind. Not only is international travel verboten into and out of the once and present penal colony, but now interstate movement has been slammed shut too. Stories emerging from lockdown under daily 
border on the absurd. Rescue dogs are being shot dead for fear that volunteers who might come to collect them would be in breach of the COVID lockdown restrictions. Singles are needing to register their partners with the state to request adult sleepovers. And citizens, numbering nearly half the population at various points, under house arrest are being allowed outside for only one hour of exercise per day. And that, provided they have their appropriate papers on them. This, by any measure, is a disastrous collapse of civil liberties, and all in a developed, affluent, Western liberal democracy, and all in the space of barely a year and a half. The Australian canary is deep in the COVID coal mine, dear listeners, and she is swooning. First they came for the Victorians, then they came for the New South Welshmen, now they have come for the whole of Australia. The question for the rest of us is, if we don't speak out against this now, who will be left to stand with us when our time has come? Joining me to discuss all this and plenty more is Bonner Denning Letter, co-author and favourite of this program, Mr. Dan Denning. Please join us for our full conversation up next. Yes, I am back in the country. Thank you for asking. Um, Welcome back. I very nearly wasn't, as uh, as as you might have seen. <clears throat> it, I mean, there's something about the the guy with the high vis vest and the walkie-talkie and the clipboard coming onto a plane that's already been delayed on the tarmac for an hour, and then like fingering you as you know 23D or whatever who's been holding up the entire plane. Apparently, in telling him, you know, having him tell you that um, you've got to disembark, that's that's pretty, you know, a little disturbing. Oh, so you were you were the cause of the delay? Well, I have to think so. I mean, I, I had already been held up both at the ticketing gate and then at the boarding gate because, you know, I travel to the U.S. on an ESTA visa. But there's been some complications. I, I imagine that they're COVID-related administrative cock-ups, essentially, um, with Australians who, as everybody knows, are not traveling anywhere in the world <laughs> right now, not even interstate, uh, which we'll, we'll probably talk about. But um, yeah, so coming back from Europe, I think they wanted to know why an Australian would be traveling on an ESTA visa from Greece should, to the US. You might explain what an ESTA visa is to those who don't have one or for whom it's not required. Uh, what one? Yeah. So uh, essentially it's part of a kind of a visa waiver program where you get 90 days as an Australian um, citizen to stay in the United States. Um, and that's what I'd, that's what I've always been, you know, coming and going on. And in fact, I came in on that visa in April of this year when I came up here at the beginning of summer Um and so, you know, I thought it was totally valid and I, I checked my my digital receipt, uh, which I had dutifully stored on my digital device <laughs> uh, in this age. And, and so, I, you know, I brandished that and told him, no, no, this is valid and whatnot. And then the guy did something that people with high-vis vests and clipboards never do. They um, went around their... Um, their job description and decided to just let me on the plane anyway and said, we'll just sort it out from our end while you're in the air. 
And I was like, that can't be right. This is, <laughs> but I didn't say anything, of course. Uh, and so I was allowed on the plane. And then when we got to cruising altitude, I immediately logged into the in, in-flight Wi-Fi and checked the status of my visa, which of course had been changed, uh, changed to not existing. And so then I was kind of left in limbo to think, oh, I wonder what will happen when I land without a valid entry permit or visa. Um, I didn't know whether I was going to be sent back to Greece. And there were rumblings already that U.S. citizens, you know, people flying from the U.S. were not going to be allowed to go to the EU. I didn't know if I was going to be sent to Argentina, which is my country of residence, or to Australia, which is my country of, you know, on my passport. And I'd be one of the the handful of people that made the, that particular border crossing for the week. <laughs> I was thinking, oh God, please don't send me, don't send me to. Uh, the once and future penal colony. So yeah, I didn't know what was going to go on. Uh, and then my wife, Anya told me, Hey, worst case scenario, we head down to Mexico and just ride it out there, which was pretty, pretty soothing advice as I kind of envisioned the, you know, Pacific ocean lapping on the Cabo sands. I was like, Oh, that's, that's not a bad, <laughs> it's not a bad plan B. But then when I refugee lifestyle. Yeah. Exactly. But then when I, when I landed, they said, um, yeah, this has been kind of a common, uh, common, whatever bureaucratic oversight. There's something where people are dropping out of the, the ESTA visa program and, uh, they just had to, had to reinstate it. But it did mean that I had to go to the secondary, you know, uh, processing room, which always sounds kind of creepy and Orwellian. Um, but I, I managed to escape the rubber glove treatment. So all's well that ends well. I guess for the moment. <laughs> yeah. I, for now. I mean, I, I uh, when I read your story, it sounded like you were, you know, it, it was with the benefit of hindsight or where you were in the air. So you were at least on the way and uh, you know, you were relatively bemused or relaxed about it, but it is a uh, stressful. And uh, you know, I think when I was, I'm getting ready to write my weekly update for uh Bonner Denning letter readers and, I ran across a couple of things that I hadn't seen uh, earlier in the summer because I was getting ready for the move, which I've just made to Laramie, which couldn't have gone any easier for me. Actually, I, I, I think I told you privately, I I got settled for a week and then I uh, spent the last 48 hours doing all the things I needed to do to establish residency in Wyoming. And it was incredibly easy. <laughs> Wyoming has the best, <laughs> Laramie has the best DMV in the country, as far as I can tell, because uh I was able to get in and out with no fuss and a state ID card. I registered to vote. Don't have any intentions to vote, but I registered unaffiliated and uh, opened a bank account without a background check and uh, and even got a P.O. box with a single digit attached to it. So they asked if I preferred a, a P.O. box that was higher up because I was tall. <laughs> I thought, who am I dealing with? Who are oh, these This is service. <laughs> But, you know, then I sat down today to get back to work and I saw uh, that earlier in the summer, the uh, Treasury Department, a 32-year-old Harvard-trained protege of Larry Summers had written the American Tax Families Plan, which was how the Biden administration was going to pay for you know, trillions of dollars in new spending. And, and one of their plans was to spend over 10 years, $80 billion at the IRS to hire something like 80,000 new agents over 10 years, not all at once, and then to uh, gradually use information technology and software to increase tax compliance 
by uh, monitoring all your financial transactions, your non-cash financial transactions to make sure that uh, you were paying appropriate tax. And so it's this dragnet on uh, private financial behavior where nothing will be private anymore because the assumption is if if your financial behavior is private, it's probably illegal because you're trying to hide something so you don't have to pay mm. tax on it. And so um, I hadn't seen that, but I was you know, reading that and and uh, some other tax plans from the Biden administration and uh, realizing that this crackdown on physical movement, which was COVID related, has culminated in these vaccine passports and digital apps, which track your location. And we can talk about how draconian and, and scary that is in Australia. But the 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 light had gone on before for me, but now I realized, well, the, the plan is to do the same with your money. Mm. And whether whether it's your savings or um, your wealth, however your wealth is defined, or um, so you know it's, it's it, as Jeremy Irons said in that famous scene in Margin Call when they're trying to decide whether to unload all their crappy uh, residential mortgage-backed securities. This is it. <laughs> you know, this, is, <laughs> this is the big move toward making your money as immobile as you are physically. And it won't mm. necessarily happen overnight. But one thing we've learned in the last year or two is everything happens faster than you think. So when I read your story about kind of getting stranded midair, not knowing what your status was going to be, it occurred to me, okay, we better uh, better start executing our plans. And if you don't have a plan, like you said, you'd better get it now. Yeah, so that, that's... That's a very interesting uh, trail of breadcrumbs there. Let's let's go back, I guess, to the, the beginning, because as you said, this doesn't happen overnight and we do kind of get conditioned into accepting things that, you know, a week, a month, six months ago would have seemed, you know, just completely beyond the pale and are now just par for the course. So um, you and I were, were remarking privately that we had kind of floated uh, a thesis, I guess, around... I guess it was around this time last year, um, the Australian canary in the COVID coal mine. And it's one of those things that you hate to have been proven right about. Uh, but we had noticed, and you had noticed in particular, because you you were down in Australia around when the, the news of the pandemic broke in early 2020 and decided to, to fly the coop and, and ride it out in the US where you thought and were proven to be correct that there would be, you know, more more pushback against the kind of authoritarian mission creep of the state. Um, but you had seen kind of the writing on the wall uh, down in Australia early on, and then uh, as we were reporting through 2020, we saw just increasingly draconian measures. And you know, there was uh, the pregnant mother being handcuffed in front of her kids, and you know, uh, the Australian Armed Forces boots on the ground enforcing curfew, you know, things that you would, that weren't even enacted during wartime uh, in Australia were now enacted during a, you know, during a peacetime, all kinds of special um, powers were being acceded to various health ministries and, uh, and, and sort of mid-level bureaucrats that had been, you know, really heretofore unseen. Um, But let's fast forward sort of a year into this now, or more than a year, it's, you know, 16, 18 months. And I think people around the world have just started, if they're paying attention, would have just started to see over the past couple of weeks, 
some memes and news stories starting to emerge about just how bad things in Australia have gotten just within that relatively short time period. So uh, it, it, as glim as it as it is, you want to catch us up on sort of where things stand uh, in Australia at the moment. I know you follow the, the news being an Aussie resident. Uh, Aussie citizen, rather, I should say. Yeah, no, I am still, and it's one of the one of the things I check each day to see what's happened, and partly to see how the media is covering it because I, I think it's important. And you, you and I both know this, and I'm sure all of our listeners know this too. That it's really dangerous to form your impression of what's going on in the country by paying attention to the mainstream media because uh, it's almost 100. percent Well, not 100. percent it's not going to be accurate. There's an agenda behind it, uh, either in attacking certain ideas or promoting certain institutions. So when you, and, and as you've mentioned before, Australia is in some ways a perfect place for testing how much people will take before they either capitulate and roll over or, or they push back because it's a highly urbanized, mostly affluent uh, population where the population is concentrated in a handful of capital cities, you know, eight or nine capital cities across the country. And um, it has a fairly benign relationship with authority in the sense that as a, as a part of the Commonwealth with the Queen of England as the sovereign, it's never violently rebelled against uh, monarchy. You know, there, there have been rebellions, the Eureka Rebellion and the Rum Rebellion. But um, in some ways it, what we've seen, whether it was by design or just by human nature, is it was the perfect petri dish for both elected officials and unelected officials to take a public health emergency and run with it as far as they could in encroaching on all aspects of private life and commercial life. And they've done that. What what I think is the most shocking, it's not the media complicity, because if you if you read the stories that do get published uh, where, you know, YouTube actually YouTube kicked Sky News off of uh, its platform because it claimed that Sky News was promoting conspiracy theories. So there's a big tech aspect to this as well of enforcing whatever the orthodox belief is or what acceptable belief is. The media has generally gone along with it by fanning the flames of fear and, um, you know, reporting uh, about anti-vaxxers and uh, and using the language that we've talked about before about outbreaks and uh, epicenters and all this language of COVID, which creates the sense of an emergency. But what surprised me the most is, um, I guess, the level of support from from the the police and uh, law enforcement in enforcing these temporary public health measures as if they were the law. Mm. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer or a barrister or a Queens counselor or whatever they call them. So I couldn't say, but it, you know, now with mobile phones, you see people recording just extremely heavy handed law enforcement tactics. And, uh, you know, sadly, as we know, that's not inconsistent with what happens when one people are, are made to believe there's, uh, a massive thing to fear out there and that anyone who is non-compliant with addressing that fear is a criminal and gets treated mm -hmm. as such. So uh, I'm just also, I've talked about this. I'm not surprised about the psychological perversion of public officials who, who have used this to grab for power, 
but I have been surprised with the speed that they've rolled out technological solutions to to monitor people, to track them and make that compulsory. Uh, and then the sort of eagerness uh, from, from law enforcement and police at the local level to enforce it. So I think it's all all bad news. The only the only silver lining I think is, like I said, since we're not there, I don't know what life might be quite normal or at least comfortable for people who can zoom it in from home, order their groceries online, have their food delivered from a driver, and then get on their keyboard and shame everybody else for not taking the pandemic seriously enough. Right. So cheap virtue. I'm, yeah. So I, I think it's it's quite frightening because what what we know is that most of these things that come in, these emergency measures to restrict freedom and liberty uh, and crush small business, um, they stick around in some form long after this emergency is gone. So that that's yep. that's what worries me. Yeah, I, I, I have the um, <clears throat> an article actually out of the Atlantic uh, in front of me that was kind of doing the rounds. Um, uh, it was published about a week ago. And just to your point about the level of uh, technological surveillance uh, that has been introduced, which I, I guess will we'll segue into um, our discussion on, on total financial surveillance under, under the Biden administration. But what I'm just going to read this out here because it uh, dovetails quite well with what you said. And by the way, for, for people who are listening who are abroad who don't read The Atlantic, this isn't some alt-right think tank or, you know, something. This is about, you know, this is a mainstream, pretty progressive, um, you know, establishment magazine. So so this isn't, you know, some fringy, fringy publication. But it says here, uh, before 2020, the idea of Australia all but forbidding its citizens from leaving the country, a, restri a restriction associated with communist regimes, was unthinkable. Today, it is a widely accepted policy. Australia's borders are currently closed and international travel from Australia remains strictly controlled to help prevent the, prevent the spread of COVID-19, the government website declares. We go on down here to note that interstate travel within Australia is also severely restricted. So not just not just flying uh, off off uh, the fortress, but even within even domestic travel, uh, it says. And the government of South Australia, one of the country's six states, developed and is now testing an app as Orwellian as any in the free world to enforce its quarantine rules. Returning travellers quarantining at home will be forced to download an app that combines facial recognition and geolocation. The state will text them at random times and thereafter they will have 15 minutes to take a picture of their face in the location where they are supposed to be. Should they fail, the local police department will be sent to follow up in person, which gets to your point about the compliance uh, and just falling in line with the police department. And then this is quite shocking to me, uh, talking about the psychological shift of, you know, just toward complete uh, compliance and, and uh, really supine obedience. Uh, the quote is, we don't tell them how often or when on a random basis they have to reply within 15 minutes. This is the Premier Stephen Marshall. He said, I think every Australian should feel pretty proud that we are the national pilot for the home-based quarantine app. I mean, this is something that would embarrass uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party. And it's and yet it's being lauded in Australia as, you know, as some kind of uh, you know, some kind of point of pride uh, that that is a massive psychological shift toward, uh, you know, a, 
uh, a population full that's fully embracing its Stockholm syndrome, I would say. Yeah. And to me, I think there's only, there's like three explanations if you're trying to explain it instead of just absolutely condemn it and call it uh, <laughs> barbaric and unacceptable completely and deserving of, 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 of civil disobedience and resistance, which could probably, it's probably illegal to say that in Australia. And, you know, it's occurred to me that, that uh, these types of conversations could result with either you or I being stripped of our Australian citizenship in the same way. And I'm not comparing us to Julian Assange, but when your speech becomes illegal, mm-hmm. governments punish you by, by, by stripping you of your rights. But I think part of it could be cultural where, especially in South Australia, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I was told when I was there that, that that was when it was settled, when Adelaide was settled, it was settled as a free city, which is to say it was not populated with um, people who were transported against their will from the British Isles. And so there's a bit of a British Britishness to it, which I think is relevant because there's this inclination to just do as you're told, to uh, right. to keep calm and carry on and just, you know, we'll bear through it. So there's that aspect to it. The other aspect, though, the second, I think, is that for some people, a very small number on the fringe of the political spectrum, but within elite levels of government and academia, this is a kind of political coup. This is not backdoor socialism. This is backdoor communism. And, and, and they use the phrase to fundamentally transform. What they want to fundamentally transform is who is sovereign in society. Is it the individual or is it the state? And, and for them, and I said it's not a lot of them, but there are, they are there. This is, this is the Trojan horse they needed to change fundamentally the relationship between the people and the state. And I, I think the, the third is, is uh, more psychological. So the fear was used to justify temporary restrictions, but it comes in the context of this entire cultural preference or desire for safety which I've heard described as safetyism. And the expression of that with COVID is uh, nobody is safe until everybody is safe, which means no one can be safe until everyone is vaccinated. So to take it to its logical conclusion, safetyism is the ultimate expression of collectivism, that you do not have private health choices. It is not your body. It is not your choice because your choices affect everyone. And therefore we are entitled not only uh, to to have an opinion about your choice, but to define what choices you get to make, and that's right. just happened. That's that's just happened. It's flipped, and there were a lot of people that were already inclined to believe that emotionally, for political reasons or psychological reasons, and this is just like pouring gasoline on that fire. Uh, so to me, those are the three explanations. There's, there's a cultural explanation. There's a political explanation, and then there's a psychological explanation. But we it's all brought us to the same point where Individuals like you and me or people who are trying to decide where to be and what to do with their money have to make decisions now. And unfortunately, right. you know, if you haven't made them, then it's it's not too late, but you you got to start thinking about it. Right. Yeah. And I, now, of course, you get this um, this, you know, alleged moral justification under the guise of the pandemic for what is essentially implementing collective punishment. One of the one of the bedrocks of uh, of, of fascism. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned in a, in a private email when we were discussing uh, Australia as kind of a unique petri dish uh, 
uh, that, that is quite germane when we're discussing the goings on in the rest of the world, because, um, you know, because it is playing out this kind of, you know, real time experiment is that they have a fairly limited or relatively limited media pipeline. Um, and so it, in the context of discussions elsewhere in the UK and here in the United States about uh, quote unquote fake news, um, I was interested to see, to read in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week that there was a High Court of Australia decision um, that essentially, and I'll just kind of summarize here, but essentially um, held that individual news publishers and corporations that posted their content to third-party platforms, social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook could be held liable for the content in comment sections. Um, so, and, and that they would be held liable the moment a comment was published. And so this is kind of, it looks on the surface like it might be, you know, a way to curb uh, quote unquote misinformation or to make sure that everybody's towing the line with regards to the correct narrative. But on further, uh, you know, further contemplation about the possible outfall of this is that you think of, this is going to be a, a classic regulatory capture type scenario where you have the big players, um, you know, in Australia, you've got um, News Corp and, and, you know, network television. Those media outlets are the ones that are going to be able, let's call them big media uh, in Australia. They're the, going to be the ones that will be able to either A, people the platoon of uh, content moderators that are going to be necessary in order to, you know, go in and in real time monitor each and every comment for, you know, potential infringement. Um, or conversely, they're going to have an, a, an army of lawyers that are going to be able to deal with all the, all the libel suits that come against them. The outfits that won't be able to do that are smaller independent publishers uh, like ours. So, Essentially, this is going to be a crowding out of just the kind of uh, dissident voices that you need exactly in a time like now when it's becoming uh, it, it, criminal even to question uh, to question the narrative, uh, the accepted narrative. And now you find that that ecosystem, that media ecosystem is becoming even more airtight and uh, and uh, echo chamberish. So. I think when we when we think about fake news, you know, quote unquote, elsewhere, and the stifling of information and open discourse, once again, Australia is providing, uh, you know, a really kind of dystopian example of what might be coming down the pipeline. Yeah, well, for the corporations, it's it's competition, and they don't want that. And for mm. the the people setting the narrative, and I say, you know, the people, I mean that there's a sort of common set of interests. Uh, among the the elites, if you want to call them financial, political, media, entertainment, uh, at least there's a sort of same constellation of beliefs that all of them share, and um, anything that competes with that is a threat. And I think what this is about is one, the discussion, the, the comment sections on on major websites. And this probably is mostly directed at Facebook, I would guess, but it, you know, it can be directed at sites like Zero Hedge, where it used to be the comments were famous for, for being more interesting than the stories, but you had to wade through kind of a sewer of bile and hate and racism and 
and anti-Semitism and, and all the stuff that happens when people can comment anonymous, anonymously from all over the world. But you would find these interesting perspectives from people who were, you know, for example, working inside Lehman Brothers the week it collapsed or uh, claimed to work uh, for the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange or were bond traders or whatever. So you would get this, you know, this decentralized knowledge that, that kind of occasionally distilled into something that was useful. And then you'd get a lot of garbage. But uh, from a business point of view, having dealt with this myself in Australia, we, we decided to get rid of message boards because in order to protect ourselves from defamation or legal liability claims, which were, were not as big a problem then, we, we had to have someone moderate the comments. And uh, moderation is an act of censorship or an act of moderation, I guess. But it, um, it, you had to pay somebody to do it and it didn't generate any revenue and people didn't come to your website. You didn't want to create a website where people came to it to talk to each other. <laughs> you know, that, that was not our business model. Um, so, but I think to your point, yeah, that um, we use the word Orwellian now and it, it's, it's, we've had to use it so much. It's become, uh, become almost meaningless. But what, what he talked about in that book was for the one party, and it was a world in which there was only one party, that it was not acceptable, not only that there were any other views, but that people believed in anything else, that you had to believe in what the party believed in. And the, the best way to achieve that was to dominate the language and to dominate journalism, because that that defines the vocabulary people use to talk about the world. And if you change the language, or if you define the language, that defines how people can think about things. And so in some ways, the speech is the output. And it's not the banning of the speech or the censoring of the speech that ultimately is the most uh, destructive thing. It's the self-censoring and the control of the language because then people don't think of themselves as free. They think of themselves as taxpayers. They don't think of themselves as neighbors. They think of each other as vaccinated and unvaccinated. You know, yeah. they, they, they begin to use other people's ideas and other people's definitions and they apply them to their own life. And at that point, you sort of cease to think for yourself and you cease to live for yourself, which is entirely politically the goal in a one party state. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's <clears throat> that's spot on. And so just one more point uh, before we leave, uh, before we leave Australia as a, uh, as the focal whipping point of today's <laughs> whipping boy of today's episode. <laughs> uh, but just as a, just as a, as a point of caution to those listening in, uh, in the UK and Canada and uh, well, New Zealand is probably further gone than Australia, but, but here in the U S um, as well, we've gone through obviously the compliance of essentially the foot soldiers uh, in, in the police force uh, the the psychological shift of the population that has been conditioned to accept things that, as even the Atlantic pointed out, um, you know, a year ago would have seemed completely alien to their uh, their character as as Australians, um, and and also um, we've spoken about the you know the kind of whole fake news paradigm and the one party, one state, one message kind of uh, goal that they're driving towards. Um, I guess the last point, uh, and this may be kind of the final transition, and you alluded to it then, where we're being taught to think about our fellow citizens, our, our brothers and sisters, as 
define you know divided into the vaccinated or the unvaccinated um you, you, for example you would have seen um dictator dan andrews as he sometimes referred to down in uh down in victoria who has now explicitly said that they're going to transition from a state of lockdowns um and victoria is now under you know under the sixth i think lockdown since the beginning of um of this pandemic they're going to transition from lockdowns to what he calls lockouts and this is this is from his mouth at a press conference this isn't some you know wild conspiracy theory uh what they're going to do is essentially uh, create a two-tier economy where people who don't uh go along with vaccinations for whatever reason um they're going to essentially be locked out of the economy now he wasn't he wasn't specific in what that entails, but it's very clear that the government there have a plan to essentially create a leper colony of, you know, the unvaxxed, the unwashed, the unworthy, um, you know, despite whatever those people's religious beliefs might be, they might have, you know, different different takes on, on, um, on the health and the science behind it. But it's clear that the government has decided where, you know, what it's, uh, what its story is going to be. And anyone who deviates from that is now literally going to be, to use his term, locked out of the economy, despite whether they helped build it, spent 40 years paying taxes, whatever. Don't drive on our roads. Don't fly on our planes. Don't eat in our restaurants. Um, you know, is, uh, that seems to me kind of the ultimate end game of, uh, of you know, ostracizing those who don't, uh, who don't comply. It's... it's uh... It's it would be audacious even by North Korean standards or <laughs> even by the standards of fiction. You know, when I read it, I was extremely upset. And and then to watch him say it with the sort of sneering um, smugness of someone who's acting with almost no accountability to a parliament or to voters is quite shocking. And when I thought I thought of it, you know, if there's a, if this is sort of the worst part of the cycle, and we're not headed toward a dystopia, then what will happen is that Dan Andrews will either be locked up as a criminal for doing what he's doing, or he'll be locked away as a psychotic, as a psychopath for, <laughs> for completely manipulating the situation and exceeding his authority to, to try and, and create a segregated society and foment, not only just punish small business and individual liberty, which is, which is harmful, but to, to create division and separation in society and then enforce it with technology and the police and the Victorian police who have, you know, not covered themselves with glory in this, uh, <laughs> in this lockdown. So I, um, I don't know, uh, I guess we'll see. That's why we get back to the original point is to see how much will people take and how much do they want? And, um, you know, Australia's headed, headed to summer. So, You'd think that that uh, seasonally, seasonally, the uh, the virus would go away a little bit, but because of the lockdowns, the virus never really did propagate throughout society. So there's this inevitable increase in infections, which you hope uh, won't be, uh, you know, won't be uh, as lethal uh, as they have been in other places, but. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, uh, I'm really, really, really discouraged when I see what's going on in Australia. But it is a reminder to me that these are not uh, these things that we talk about as 
ideals and concepts like personal freedom and liberty and freedom of speech and the bill rights and the agency and the fact that there's a sphere of your life that's yours that doesn't belong to anybody else. Those are the exception historically, not the rule. And you have to stand up for them, speak up for them. And, you know, fortunately for us, I suppose, we, you know, it hasn't required any major sacrifice or commitment, but it may come to that if you live in a place where people confront you with this ultimatum that you either put something in your body that you don't want to put in or you're locked out from civil society that I can't see that ending. Well, if, Mm. if the government continues to, to take that line, I I can see that uh, leading to a lot more serious conflict um, and, and massive economic damage as well. Yeah. Well, uh, to, to end the uh, Australia, section on a on a positive note i i noticed uh, just in the past couple of days and i think i um you might might have seen this as well that <clears throat> that uh that it it's a cliche to say it's always darkest before the dawn but i think the worst is potentially over in australia because although they have um you know handcuffed pregnant women and imposed national or statewide curfews and the military is on the street and the mounted police are um, firing tear gas and rubber bullets on peaceful protesters. I think the the final straw uh, has come, and will to break the camel's back. And you would have seen this story, Dan. That <clears throat> um, this is out of Yahoo News. Australian state limits residents of COVID nineteen lockdown apartments to six beers per day. So I think this is where we're going to see the real uh, rebellion. Uh, just for a little levity here, uh, I'll read the beginning. The beginning of the, the beer, story says the beer rebellion. This will be the beer rebellion, I think. Yeah, <laughs> so it reads: uh, residents in apartment buildings that have been locked down by Australia's New South Wales State Health Department over COVID nineteen concerns say they have had deliveries searched and have had packages containing alcohol confiscated if the amount exceeds the department's prescribed alcohol limit. Because science, Dan, this is science, okay. In apartment blocks locked down by New South Wales Health, residents are having their alcohol deliveries policed in accordance with the department's policy, which allows residents to receive a ration <laughs> of six beers or pre-mixed drinks, one bottle of wine, or one 375ml bottle of spirits, according to sources. So maybe maybe the tide has finally turned. You can, you can lock up Australia's pregnant mothers, but I tell you what, if you start messing with their daily beer rations... There is going to be revolution by high noon. I, I hate to make light of it, but we do have to laugh. If not, we'll we'll be left to weep. <laughs> Fingers crossed, Joel. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I was going to. I realize I've run quite a bit over time here, but uh, it, we're g- going to get into Biden's total financial surveillance. Oh, you know, uh, look, I, I don't think it takes. We could talk a lot about it, but yeah, um, I, you know, I think the. Um, for a long time, you and I and other people have been talking about um, the relationship between getting rid of physical cash and uh, negative interest rates. So it started out as primarily a monetary policy discussion driven by Ben Bernanke's 2004 paper about interest monetary policy at the zero lower bound. So once interest rates were zero in nominal terms, what else could a central bank do to prevent deflation, which is Bernanke's big bugaboo of having studied Japan. 
And one of the issues they talked about and people took from that paper was if you got rid of cash, people's ability to, to hoard physical currency or, or um, yeah, basically save, to have cash yeah. to save <laughs> then you could, then you could modify their behavior by making interest rates negative. So you could punish them by, by um, imposing negative interest rates, essentially deleting the money in their bank account. Now, by the way, when I opened my bank account the other day at the local bank here in Laramie, my interest rate was 0.05 on my savings. So wait, you must you must have shopped around for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a ne- it's a negative real return adjusted for inflation. So, um, so that aspect that we knew was coming, but um, what what was missing is is cash is for the unbanked which is a lot of people who don't have access to credit or electronic banking, cash is the only way to function in the real economy. And uh, despite what the Treasury Department and the IRS say, not all cash transactions by proprietors or tradesmen or individuals uh, are illegal. And it's not people trying to conceal taxable activity from from the tax authorities. It's just the way people do business. So that bothers them. That bothers people and uh, in, in governments all over the world because one, they have a lot of debt and they need to increase taxes. So they claim that there's a lot of unpaid tax by people evading it through, God forbid, running a sole proprietorship instead of being an employee. So what was proposed by the Biden administration earlier this summer is to require financial institutions, which is a very broad definition, by the way, to report all non-cash transactions. So by financial institutions, I mean your bank, I mean your cryptocurrency exchange, I mean PayPal, I mean Venmo, I mean Cash App. In any of these ways where you send money in microtransactions to people, pay them via eBay or something like that, they're worried that those transactions uh, are ways of, I suppose, avoiding tax or laundering money in some cases. So what they're proposing is that all of those institutions be required to report every non-cash transaction you make to the IRS. Any inflows or outflows to your bank account or to those accounts uh, must be visible technologically to the tax authorities. And so that, that's really the full expression of financial surveillance is not just having the ability to see what you're doing, but the next step to that is the ability to either grant permission or deny permission based on what they're seeing. So that's why it concerned me because uh, getting rid of cash is hard to do. And to create a, a parallel central bank digital currency is hard to do. Like it's hard enough to get everybody to have an app on a smartphone so the government of South Australia can force you to verify your identity with facial recognition. But you know, if you give everybody a phone and it's got a, a geolocation and facial recognition and an app that populates your government bank account with government money, then you go a long way to getting rid of cash. And that's not science fiction. That's somewhere on this timeline. (laughs) So, um, you know, that was my concern is uh, just in general, um, how do you dispose of your wealth and assets in ways where it cannot be deleted or confiscated at the whim of uh, someone who doesn't like what you say, doesn't like your political beliefs or just just randomly you get caught up in an audit for something it's a big problem but that's why we're going to be writing about it in the next few months in the in the newsletter yeah and it's also it's also why uh we began the discussion with the lockdowns transitioning to lockouts 
in Australia for your physical person, uh, you know, we kind of we predicted something like this a year ago when we were, we were monitoring the Australian canary in the COVID coal mine. And now we're, we're saying, hey, this is what's happened to the, the long-suffering people of Australia is looks like is going to be happening to your capital sometime in the future. I don't know what the timeline is, but expect lockdowns. And if you don't toe the line, potentially being locked out of that system. So uh, as you mentioned, Dan, if you don't have a plan, now, then uh, now is a very good time to get one. So you're going to be writing about this uh, in the coming issue, I guess. Yeah, and I, I guess the division of labor in our little shop is, I, I can write about it in the way that Tom and Bill and I have been writing about it, which is sort of the analog aspect of it. Like, where are you going to live? Where is your bank account? How do you reduce risk by having a second local bank account? How much money should you have on hand physically in cash? How much should you have in gold? Where should you store that gold? Should it be in an allocated account at a deposit-taking institution or should it be with a bullion bank or should you have it in your sock drawer? Um, what other things qualify as kind of illiquid ways of, of storing wealth that you can later liquefy? So that that's all kind of financial prepper, I guess you'd say. And it's very mm -hmm. bearish based on our view that the stock market is wildly overvalued with the US market cap being 204% of GDP now. Global market cap is 142% of GDP. So we take it as a given that the stock market is not a safe place to save your money during uh, these kind of financial conditions. But the other aspect in the encouraging part in, about being in Wyoming, Wyoming is making itself a, a sort of safe haven for digital asset management. So there are a lot of companies that are moving here because the state government has said, we want digital assets to be an industry in Australia. And we we have seen that. I mean, when we talk about Miami. financial lock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sorry. No, not not in Australia. Australia. You said Australia. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's sorry. Right. No, Wyoming. Oh, yeah. gosh, no. Um, <laughs> They're getting so to you. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the other part of the argument that we probably need to spend more time on in, in the newsletter is there, there has been and there continues to be a lot of uh, creativity, disruption, and decentralization in decentralized finance and in this whole ecosphere, which is so much more complicated and, and um, expansive than, than I can keep up with that, that we, need to, we need to do more to explore that. At the same time, keeping an eye on things like uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and the metaverse which I think are just largely distractions. And what I mean by that is I don't think personally me or you or a lot of people that are listening to this are going to be interacting in the metaverse anytime soon or or perhaps trading non-fungible tokens. But it's sort of our obligation to understand the underlying technologies, which may be good investments for people. Uh, the actual you know pictures of a rock that sold for half a million dollars, probably not we're not going to be recommending those, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of Spoiler. Now that I'm settled here. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> now that I'm settled here. That's, that's what we're going to be looking at in the next few months. And then hopefully we're going to try and organize a, a get together where we can very much get together in kind of a digital room like this, uh, but get, get the whole band back together as it were, get Bill and Tom yep. in the room and some of our friends, uh, Rick rule and Chris Mayer. So that's what we're working on now for uh, later this year. And uh, um, we'll let people know uh, when that's going to happen and when, when we're ready to invite them.
Yeah, fantastic. That'll be a, a, a good forum to talk about some of the opportunities that are on, on the flip side of the crises that we've been uh, tracking and uh, and working out how appropriately to respond to. So, Dan, mate, I've run a bit over time today, mate, but I do really appreciate uh, your considered thoughts as always and uh, look forward to catching up to you again with you again really soon. Can I encroach on you for just one second to, to point out one thing? Because you just you made a really good it's point. Dope. Um, when we're putting together this event and when we've been talking about it, we're not talking about what's happening in the next 10 months, although that's all very important in terms of your asset allocation and your risk in the financial markets. What we're talking about is the next 10 years, talking about family wealth, generational wealth, and these big changes to money, to technology, to geography, to government, and with, with 80 million baby boomers retiring uh, in the next 10, 15 years, our plan, and when we think about it, is what does the world look like in 10 years? And what do we need to do now so that so that on the other side of all of this, uh, we haven't taken a big loss financially and, and we're well positioned to, uh, to not lose money, but maybe to make some money and more importantly, to be able to look after uh, the things that are important to us, ourselves, our family, our businesses, those things. So we're taking it, we're, we're trying to take a long-term thing, even though we spent a lot of time talking about stuff that happened in the last month. I want people to know that the mission that we're focused on is, is, is much longer term than that. So that's what's, that's what's coming up for the next couple, couple months. All right. Awesome. We got to, we got to wrap a, a snappy conference theme around that, uh, snappy conference <laughs> name around that theme. Okay, mate. Uh, good to talk to you and we'll uh, chat again soon. And you. See you, Joel. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.